You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Moritz Siebert and I, Niels Kostoblasen, are back with this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series, where each week we give you a raw and honest account of what it's like to be a rules-based investor, what news and articles caught our attention, and of course, where we also attempt to answer all of your questions. Good afternoon, Moritz. How are you doing today? Good afternoon, Niels. How are you? Rainy weekend. Not only a rainy Sunday, it's a completely overcast rainy weekend, so I don't mind hanging out with you and chatting about the markets. Absolutely, let's do that. And uh, just for everyone's benefit, today it may be a little bit shortened uh, episode, um, but that is just due to some other things that we have to uh, take into account uh, on today's recording. But anyways, 2020 keeps surprising many investors and Friday's May jobs report, which showed a net increase of 2.5 billion in the payrolls number and a 13.3% unemployment rate versus the consensus of 8.3 million jobs lost and a 19.5% unemployment rate is just the latest kind of surreal development in what can only be said is already an unusual year that won't be easily forgotten. And if you look at the level of the VIX, you probably wouldn't think that this year we've had the highest level of volatility in history. But I will just say that I have seen some um, reports on social media that there is some kind of error in the May jobs report. So let's see how that all plays out. Nevertheless, the market seems to be liking what they see. And we've already, of course, enjoyed a very sharp V-shaped recovery. And this lasted all the way into uh, this weekend. It also meant, by the way, that some of the safe haven markets like FX and gold, uh, sorry, not FX, fixed income and gold, got sold off by investors. And uh, although we did see a little bit of strength in the dollar on Friday, it was actually a week where also that got sold. Energies, uh, another strong week. And uh, all in all, this week, as we will talk about shortly, <laughs> inflicted uh, more pain on trend-following strategies. And, uh, of course, we will also explain why this is quite normal. And that's what often happens when we see these V-shaped trend changes. Of course, we have to look at the bigger picture. 2020 has uh, perfectly demonstrated why all stock and bond portfolios and investors need trend following in their portfolio, as this combination of these investments have really helped each other out this year so far during the uh, ever-changing environment. So... With all of that said, Moritz, dare I ask how your week was? I've already said it wasn't a great week for any of us. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, those uh, those weeks are part of the spectrum of trend following. There's just nothing you can do about it if you follow your system. I've lost a bit more than 3% in this past week. Now negative for the year for the first time. Minus 2.65% year to date. As is so often the case, you know, we've said it before, the short side of trades, they don't produce much of the winners, but they sometimes tend to cause a lot of the losers. And all of the losing stuff this week comes from short side of trades, short crude, short copper, short sugar, short coffee, short emissions, short yada, 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 right? And none of that stuff has essentially worked. I didn't really, you know, I had a, a handful of winners, but none of them substantially large, like 
you know, a long position in orange shoes, a long position in rice, but none of that really covered the massive losses from all those other positions. So it is what it is. A couple of trades. I mean, I had a short S&P position on. That one got stopped out. Well, so be it. Covered a short in the Aussie dollar, covered a short in the euro stocks as well. So some movement in the portfolio. And, you know, when I when I speak to people in the markets, the, the feedback that I get is that everyone is still or continues to be extremely perplexed uh, about the strength of equities in the recent weeks. It, it's just a relentless move to the upside. Who would have thought that? I mean, you know, the Nasdaq is now at an all-time high. The S&P is positive for the year. Forecasting these markets is pointless, in my opinion. Like you've just alluded to the job uh, jobless figures, uh, Niels. I mean, the forecast is is X and the result is so far away from X that it, it's not even in the same ballpark, right? So it's incredibly volatile. What I hear is that because it's so volatile and, and so uncertain, a lot of people have stayed away from reallocating to equities. I mean, yes, there has been some reallocation going on, but what I hear is that a lot of the institutional money is still sitting on the sidelines and they were kind of like, no, 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 I don't trust this bear market rally. This will make another leg lower and maybe it will, right? For now, it doesn't. It's uh, it's moving higher essentially every day. So at what point are people going to scream uncle and, uh, you know, just throw in the towel and buy? And then who's to say that we're not going to be 20% higher by the end of the year uh, on the S&P 500, as surprising as this may be, as, you know, far away from valuation, whatever valuation is, this may be, or whatever people use as their metrics to determine whether the prices are fair or not. To me, those episodes, they're, they're always, again, a reminder to not overthink it, not forecast those markets. Yes, follow the systems, put those trades on, you will have a losing week like I did this week. But having a view on what these markets are going to do tomorrow, next week, next month, oh no, I'm not doing that. I obviously completely agree with all of the, or what you said. I want to, before I walk through uh, our week, I want to pick up on what you said because I think there's a couple of really interesting points that you can transfer from what we do on a manager level to actually what you can do as an investor. And what, what I've certainly seen this year, speaking to the point you said about where some investors are completely perplexed, they're not allocated enough to the markets right now. So they may be the ones now being forced to buy the new highs. And and I wouldn't be surprised that that then is the new high and then we get another surprise. Anyways, certainly what I've seen with some of the, what I would call the smart investors that I come across is that they were as disciplined as we are when it came to what they had to do during the COVID sell-off. So what they did was they sold the things that had not lost the money, including CTAs, and they bought the equities because they kept rebalancing their portfolio to keep that asset allocation that is so useful, so helpful for them over time, but which has also meant that in the last few weeks, now they're doing the reverse. They're lightening up a little bit on the equities and they're buying back the CTAs. And I think that is really smart and that's what you should do. You don't necessarily have to do it this frequency normally because the mark the moves are not that great but in a case where you get a 35 40 percent sell-off in equities yeah you definitely need to go and rebalance but you know this is something is the same kind of discipline as what we uh, do in our trading so for these kind of multi-asset type portfolios they're probably having a decent year now because they got some cheap cheap uh, equities uh, into their portfolio at the right time 
and it didn't really cost them a lot or as much uh, on the downside because they had things such as CTAs, probably maybe some gold, I don't know, but they had other things that had not lost uh, that much on, on during the, the, the heat of the crisis. And so um, perfect example of how you can instill discipline on all levels of investing not just on the manager level. Anyways, to go back and answer the question, yes, I mean, we certainly also had a a rough week this week with this complete V-shaped move in many markets. I was looking at the portfolio, you know, we trade 55 markets, 45 of them lost a bit of money this week. So clearly one of those weeks. And we'll see. Uh, it doesn't mean that exposure has flipped completely. It's not like we're suddenly long equities to a large extent or anything like that. But of course, during a week like this, uh, positions gets adjusted accordingly and and, uh, we live to fight another week. And that's the way it's always been. Other than that, not much I can add to your weekly recap. But I did want to pick up on some of the things because as we say, it's been a rough week. It's been a rough maybe few weeks for some of these quant strategies. So I wanted to pick up on an article that I found on Bloomberg and where the headline was, Fast Money Quants Gets Whiplashed in Ferocious Market Rebound. And I think the article highlights a few points that we talk about, but why don't we uh, dig into it as a good recap of some of the things that we often come across. So first of all, it talks about how Quants has suffered in this bear market rally. It says Wall Street bulls are back with a vengeance. No doubt about that. We all We're all aware of that. And then it talks about first we had the quickest correction on record during the corona crash. And now since then, we've had like probably the quickest rebound also in history. And then they go in and talk about some of the sectors despite, you know, in addition to to equities, we've seen now the 10-year treasury yield is starting to rebound, uh, moving up uh, at a decent pace. The euro is suddenly breaking out to the upside after a, a long downtrend. Uh, against the the US dollar. They also talk about the SOCGEN CTA index tracking the cohorts performance. And now we're the cohorts. It's down 3% for the year. I'm not entirely sure which index, whether it is the trend index, but the trend index is down a couple of percent for the year. So it's not too far off. But they also talk about how there's been $28 billion redeemed from CTAs as of April. One positive thing they do say is that these systematic managers who speculate in futures markets are still beating hedge funds overall. So that's nice. But of course, they also point out that the performance is a far cry from the 2008 crisis alpha. I mean, I think already there, we can start there, Moritz. The tone is set. These journalists who were very quiet during the month of March, early April, they're back now, making it sound like it's just another... Another example of how these strategies are not working. But as you and I often talk about, they're actually working exactly as they are designed to do. And as I talked about a few minutes ago, for those who had them in their portfolio, they played a very pivotal role during the crisis. And okay, now they're losing a bit on that part of their portfolio, but they're making a lot more on the other part. These articles, they sound a bit like, you know, trend-following CTAs, have the wrong positions on. Right. And I think this is a, there, there's a difference there that we need to distinguish. I think we have the right positions on. They're just not producing the positive P&L at that point in time. But I think the positions that I have on, they are the right positions. 
they just happen to lose money at that point in time. You know, I mean, when I look at a lot of the macro forecasts from global macro, you know, people that we enjoy listening to, for instance, on Real Vision or we read reports, right? I mean, they're saying, well, this is a deflationary period. Equities need to make a, a leg lower. This is, yes, it is a V recover, V-shaped recovery, but it's a bear market rally. The US dollar needs to go higher and bond yields will go lower. This is kind of like the positioning of my portfolio. It's just not making the money right now. But this isn't to say that, you know, I mean, hey, maybe we're going to have another week, another two weeks, another month of, of suffering with those positions and then we'll change. But um, who's to say that maybe, you know, in a week or two weeks time, we'll be up 5%. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. You're you're exactly right, actually, in terms of how a lot of these global macro guys who don't necessarily use any kind of trend following models to to come up with their current asset allocation, and 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 of course, uh, Royal Pal has been quite right on 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 a lot of his calls leading into this. So it is quite interesting that at the moment you could say to some extent that our positions uh, are quite similar, and therefore, of course, only time will tell whether this is, quote-unquote, a bear market rally or whether this is the beginning of something very different. Of course, when you look at the numbers, it's very hard to understand why equities would be making new highs as they have already started to do again. And as you said, S&P up for the year now, given the underlying economic conditions. And so it'll be interesting to see how, certainly in a year where there is an election in the US as well, I mean, the political part of all of this, when you get huge dispersion between the rich and the poor, I don't think should be ignored. And of course, I think if GDP falls as much as is forecasted by some of the uh, local Feds, you're going to see the Buffett ratio, which I think is just like value of S&P over the GDP, uh, US GDP. That ratio is going to blow out completely to levels we haven't seen before. And that might create even more tension in a in a country where you already see tension on the streets every single day, which will then make itself back to the market at some point. So we'll see. I mean, it's still early days. And, and as you and, to and I were talking about just before we got on, when I look at the four big crises, 87, tech bubble, great financial crisis, so at least those three, which of course are finished, and I look at our own performance during these periods. They were, it was all it was strong through all three, but it didn't come in a straight line by any means of these imagination. I mean, sometimes we started losing money in the beginning of the crisis, and then we would make it up towards the end of the crisis. Sometimes we made money in the beginning, then we gave back quite a bit of it, and then we made it back plus some towards the end of the crisis. You just never know. And as you rightly say, not having any prediction in your in your in your portfolio you know is probably a good idea in a in a world where even if you are predicting you might be incredibly wrong as the jobs numbers on friday told us i think this is exactly the right way to look at that niels look i mean i'm, I'm down 2.65 percent for the year roughly flat i would call that given my volatility right i mean this could be up one percent by the end of next week or up two percent by the end of next week or down five who knows but I mean, what it shows when, when I step back from it, it's kind of like we're closing in on the half year mark for this year. So I'm roughly flat with the portfolio, right? Okay, fine. No, no big damage done. I mean, I'm not down 30%, right? But what I need to put in front of my eyes is if, if I didn't have a system, if I didn't have a model that, you know, tells me when to do the trades and you've used the phrase lift to trade another day, which is so important, right? Surviving all of this. 
If I were a discretionary trader forecasting those market moves, I probably would have freaked out or very, very likely freaked out with the correction in March or end of February till the end of March, right? And by all likelihood, I'd be down substantially more as an equity investor, you know, throwing in the towel at, you know, the worst possible time predominantly or presumably. So these models aren't bad. You still, we have the right positions on. And it's like you say, they don't immediately produce the P&L that we want them to produce. But depending on how that year develops further, yeah, maybe we'll have another great lack. And also, by the way, speaking of the, the central banks and all that, I mean, right now it looks like what they did was great and they have it all mm. under control. But regardless of how much money they print, they can't print jobs. And so let's see in a few months how that all looks like in terms of joblessness. Yes, and I guess this is what or many people are so puzzled about is they, they look at the world and they see all those possible conflicts, all those problems, right? The euro in Europe, the tension in Hong Kong, the oil markets, tension in the US, jobless quotes, GDP, recession, depression, inflation, deflation. I mean, you name it. You can write a book about what's going on and it's all essentially negative, right? But there's this one thing, which is a central bank. And they just, you know, open the floodgates print the money or, you know, stabilize the system, flood it with liquidity. And maybe it is as simple as that, that, you know, if there is this thing with this firepower and they support the markets, then, well, just don't get in the way of it. Yes. Of course, we don't have that programmed into our systems. I have nothing in my system that says here's a response function to central bank action, right? It seems to be like, hey, there is this there's this thing, the central bank, which is essentially providing free puts to everybody. So let's just take it. Yeah. And then I'm sure some people probably have modeled that into it because you can. But what's interesting about that is that I saw some stats that during the initial QE phase, you could say, OK, for every $20 billion they uh, would print, it usually meant 1% up move in the S&P or something like that. Right. But now with the velocity of money just you know falling off a cliff, now they have to print like five times that amount to uh, get to 1% up move. So it becomes kind of um, silly money. And who will pay that back? Well, the thinking I have is that, uh, and what, what seems to be going out of Twitter, I mean, if you can print money without consequence, why don't you print more and then people don't have to pay tax? Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's yeah. you know all the new ways of thinking about stuff, yeah. right? But in our like standard like double entry bookkeeping world, you know, Ooh. if you're printing that debt, you know, there is some entry on the other side of that balance sheet. So who's paying that back? My kids, your kids? I wonder whether that's why that Jubilee the Fed, defaults. Yeah, well, you know, the Fed doesn't want to be audited. So no, um, no and you know, they're, that's because they're independent, right? You, you can't go oh, to yes. them, right? And they go like, well, price stability. So price stability means I think this is the the, the stance in Europe with um, Lagarde, close to but not higher than 2%. And I've always been puzzled by that because you and I know what compounding does, right? If you're compounding 2% for 10 years, I mean, that is definitely not price stability, right? Right. <laughs> you're right. behind more than 20%. So I, I don't get it what they, you know, what they want to do there. Maybe this entire construct of how central banks work and, and what they do and, and what their purpose is in uh, economies will be rethought at some point and maybe replaced by some new ideas. I, I don't know. But I mean, it, it seems to be that it's 
recurring all the time. We're, we're getting these problems, and the central banks need to, you know, firefight it. And at the end of the day, it yeah, it doesn't work, and currencies stop existing, or they become completely devalued, and then we do it again. Well, since we are kind of off topic today, anyways. Let me just throw uh, one more thing into it. When you say that maybe these institutions will be re, they'll rethink how it operates. I can only suggest that everyone goes and watch the documentary. Uh, I think it's fair to call it on Real Vision with Grant and Neil Howey. Essentially, Neil Neil, uh, Neil Howe and and one other gentleman who I forgot the name of wrote the book. Right, wrote the book, yeah. the fourth fourth turning, and we are in the fourth turning right now. It started around 2008. It's going to last until 2030, about 22 years. And then there is another three generations, and then you get back to the fourth turning. So, But if you go back four generations and you look at what happened back then, which is, of course, around the First and the Second World War, things did change, and authorities and institutions were rethought and changed. And so, yes, I mean, I think that's exactly what's going to happen in the next 10 years, is we're going to realize that it doesn't work. And then they're going to come up with new structures. So yeah, on that point, I think people should watch that because it's a very good illustration of how society works and changes. And I can only recommend for those who have access to, um, well, you don't even have to have access to Real Vision. There's there's a a professor out there, a gentleman, German guy uh, by the name of Richard Werner. He lives in the UK. He used to live in Japan. He's an economist. He's written a book called The Princes of the Yen, which I had never heard of. Uh, I only picked it up because I watched Hugh Hendry on Real Vision, and he brought it up. There's also a documentary on YouTube, which people can. It's about, you know, an hour, hour 15 or something like that, which people can watch, which which I found absolutely fascinating because it zooms in on the way the Bank of Japan and the Japan Ministry of Finance, how they collaborated essentially after the Second World War to stimulate the Japanese economy and what problems that caused. And it gets you thinking about what central banks can do, what's in their armor, and how manipulative manipulative they, they can be for prices, for credit creation, and all of that, right? And I just thought that if this is happening again, people aren't stupid. They can read the books of the history books, right? And they can ascertain that, hey, this kind of like happens, like the fourth turning comes every hundred years or whatever it is, right? It happens over and over and over again in the same manner. Currencies stop existing. They become devalued. There's a flight to gold, right? And and kind of like the system resets. Are they going to accept it the next time that some government or some elected officials are saying, well, we're going to put up another central bank and now we're going to do it this time. Or will they go, no, 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 we've got enough of this. We're doing it decentralized with the electrodollar, crypto, Bitcoin, whatever the case may be, but we've got enough of that, you know, central bank. There's like this mystical institution in the middle that tries to guide us. But, you know, to be honest, it never works. It, it, it always ends in failure. Well, let me pick up on that just for, for a couple of more minutes. And that is what was really interesting about that documentary that uh, is based on Richard Werner's book is the fact that since he lived in Japan at the time and was, you know, part of, you kind of could see it from the inside, what actually took place. And, and think about that uh, when you think about what's happening right now. What took place was that the BOJ, the Bank of Japan, kind of engineered the bubble. And so when it all went wrong... What usually happens when these things go wrong is people will say, oh, 
well, we need more independence for the central bank. So that was their aim all along, was to actually make political reform and change to make them even more powerful, more independent. So they engineered the bubble in Japan. And just look at what's happening with the Fed right now and what would happen if this ends badly. Would the Fed get even more uh, independence? And one more thing, because I know you, you're, you're, you're burning on, the, on this topic as well. The most independent central bank in the world is ECB. the ECB. Exactly. And, you know, it, it's because we're systematic traders, you know, this is kind of like for us, this is, yeah, I, I enjoy reading about these things, but it's it's not related to my trading and my positioning, right? So it's kind of like a, a hobby you're interested in those type of things. But like you say, in Japan, they had this concept of window guidance. So it's a cooperation between the Ministry of Finance and the Bank of Japan. And the Bank of Japan wasn't all that independent, right? And here in Europe, the ECB, by statute, is completely independent. You can't get to that organization. They're not liable. They're not accountable to anyone. They don't have to show their books or records, right? They, they, they're completely above the law, essentially. And this is why, you know, we just, I think two weeks ago, we had a ruling here, uh, a high court ruling in, in Germany about um, the legality of, you know, those bond purchasing programs. Essentially, you know, it, it doesn't matter what a German court says. You know, this ECB institution just sits above the law and Lagarde will say, well, nice ruling, I'll read it, I'll consider it, but it's not going to impact anything here in, uh, at the level of the ECB. So these organizations, they're fascinating in a bad way, maybe. And I'm going to need your help here uh, with some German pronunciations here. Because what's fascinating about that story is that when they created the ECB, they did not model it on the old Bundesbank. The Reichsbank. They modeled it on what was before, which was the Rhein. The Reichsbank, yeah, which the was Reichsbank. completely independent. Exactly. Which And the Reichsbank, of course, was the one that played a pivotal role in what happened leading into the world wars and during the world wars. But when they created the Bundesbank, they made a big change. They made it accountable to the parliament, even though we as market participants, because I remember this very clearly as a young government bond trader having to pay attention to every single move of the Bundesbank. The Bundesbank was prudent. It was sensible. It was hawkish when it needed to be hawkish, etc., etc., and it all felt like they were incredibly independent. But the truth is, they weren't because they had this responsibility to the German parliament. But then when the ECB came along, they said, no, we can't do that. We're going to make it completely independent, going back to the Reichsbank's uh, model. Yeah. And oh my God, that sends shivers down my spine to think that that's actually what they yeah. did. And now you see some of those things happening in front of our eyes where they just don't care about anything exactly and you know i think those discussions and the details of all of that they're certainly above my pay grade and i don't want to give people the illusion that i'm in detail knowledgeable about central bank policy i'm really not right so i'm, I'm just picking stuff up and i'm i find it interesting to uh, to listen to alternative and different opinions like the one by richard Werner, right which, which gives you a very different perspective on how that stuff works and you can read the, you know, Ray Dalio is putting out some great papers uh, on LinkedIn about the history of money and the history of credit and how those debt cycles work, right? And, and how they always bust. And I just think that if we're in this fourth turning and this happens again, 
and people read the history books because all that information is now available, right? Just click on the internet, you know, you, you find it all. It's all there. Ray Dalio writes about it. Are we going to accept it that, they're, that we're just going to do it in the same way again? So, yeah, let's devalue it all. Here's a new central bank. Let's call it whatever central bank and go again on another 100-year ride. I'm not so sure. But you know what, Mart's on that point? The reason I think it happens again and again and again is this didn't happen to you and I. It didn't happen to, you know, it's not happened to our children yet. Meaning that even though we can read about it in history books that it did happen and we shouldn't ha let it happen again because it didn't happen to us. That's right. Our memories are just not strong enough to avoid it. So this is probably the reason why people refer to the quote that history may not repeat itself but it sure does rhyme and uh, it's gonna rhyme pretty soon i think but there we are certainly uh, off topic today um if you like these uh, kind of global macro discussions maybe we should get real pal on the show one day and uh, and take a step away from just pure trend but anyways back to pure trend we have a couple of questions before mm. we finish off this shortened uh, episode abhishek writes in this is right up your alley moritz he writes in, um, you know, first of all, thanks so much for those great and informative episodes. Question, how to solve the problem of futures rollover cost? Price of far months contract being higher than recent month contract. Is there an effective way to roll over the futures contract to reduce the cost? Hmm. What say you? What say I? <laughs> well, so the situation that is being referred to here is a situation of contango, which is a steep futures curve, meaning the contract farther out is trading at a higher price than the current contract that is about to go into expiration. Now, if your roll schedule, if your system is such that, you know, it rolls from the front contract to the second contract, then that is what you do. And you're very likely to incur that roll loss. Let's make the example of crude, right? Crude may be trading at around 40-ish, I think now, or, you know, 38, whatever, right? And the next contract out is a bit higher than that, right? So you're buying the next contract out at a higher price. If really nothing changes in the oil market and just one month passes and goes by, you will have lost money even though the actual price of oil didn't change, right? So this is the, the cost of, of rolling into a contango scenario. Now, you can look at markets that have a more liquid term structure farther out and try to find points on the curve that are less affected by negative roll yields, right? For instance, you can decide to trade less often, to roll less often, or to find a uh, price or a point on the curve that is less contangoed than the one that is at the front of the curve. So there's a couple of ways to think about it, but I would always systematize it. What, what I'm not doing with my system is I don't have it produce a signal that tells me, hey, it's time to roll a market, it's time to roll out of crude now. I don't then look at the curve and say, I'm going to now roll into this contract. I have my system designed that for me, so it's rules-based. But of course, these rules can be programmed and I'm doing that. I have I have a look, like a systematic look at the futures curve and I'll try to find contracts which um, have the right liquidity, which don't require me to roll all the time because there's also a bit of a spreads that you pay and commissions that you pay every time you roll and um, which try to find a good point on the futures curve. Yeah, I've got nothing really to add Abhishek to this comprehensive answer from Moritz, but I will say the importance of not 
also trying to be too clever about it is that we always preach that you should test what you trade and trade what you test. Correct. So as long as that role sequence that uh, Moritz talks about, which is more or less fixed, is in your test and you're happy with your test, just trade it because you don't just know what's do going to happen in the future. Correct. Yeah. And don't worry too much about like one single role. Yeah. If you're trading a diversified portfolio, futures contracts, likelihood is that you know some markets are going to be in liquidation some markets are going to be on contango and you're going to do it more than once right your life does not depend on one role the crude oil market may be in contango now it used to be in liquidation you know 6 7 months ago or even less than that it may be in liquidation again in a couple of months time who knows right so it's just one role just do it yeah and of course if you're a short term trader it has no impact anyways uh, i would say next question is from tim I had a question for the podcast. When you're tracking the performance of an account designated to a CTA, like trend-following strategy, how often do you measure the performance? Daily, weekly, monthly? I understand it would depend on if you're short or long-term trend-following, but it seems like you could go weeks or months without closing a position. So in essence, your realized P&L for the account could be zero for month if you didn't close any trades. Or would you use the unrealized PNL for the whole account on a continuous basis to track performance? Thanks very much. I mean, Tim, let me start on this one, Tim. I, I mean, at the end of the day, it depends on what you're using it for, right? I mean, if you're really interested in what happens on a daily basis, just track your PNL every day. Some people look at it just once a week. You know, how did I do? And that's perfectly fine as well. If you're a professional money manager like, you know, we are, we have to tra track it daily. We also track it intraday to make sure everything is okay but it doesn't mean a lot other than these are certain things we have to do for our own kind of both compliance but also risk management purposes and of course we have certain reporting standards we have to adhere to both to clients and for regulatory purposes but if you're doing it for yourself yeah i mean i wouldn't go months without looking at the pnl i don't think uh, that's sensible and of course you would want to use the unrealized pnl to get an accurate picture of your uh, performance um so that's what i would say anything to add to that uh Moritz? not much i mean what what i would like to say is i i think it's at least as far as i'm concerned it's good for my mental trading health so to say to definitely not look at the intraday price action of my trend following trading system there's just nothing that you can gain from that there's really no added value I think for for the trend following trading stuff, I'd be happy to just have a look at the PL on a weekly basis and see, okay, this is what it did, right? And then review the markets and the price action on the weekend over a cup of coffee on a Saturday. But like you, Niels, I want to make sure that, you know, my system actually runs the way I want it to run, that there's no errors, no quirks, no, you know, you know, uh, failures in the process with communication to brokers and, you know, things like that. So I, I, I tend to give it a look on a daily basis just to make sure that all the lights are still on green. But, you know, a single day's performance really isn't that that important. Yeah, absolutely. Final question for this week is from Carl. Carl writes, as usual, great podcast. Thanks so much. I have allocations to different diversified funds, system strategies, and instruments. One of the funds I trade long-term in and out value stock, it brackets value stocks in the UK using a trend following strategy, using a weekly spy chart. I have a small account with IB, which I want to trade, grow, and learn from. I have an issue of not being able to trade all signals as it's not a margin account. Question, how many stocks or trades at a half percent equity per maximum 
in one account or maximum percentage of my account. I think, okay. As Jerry has said, would it be okay to pick an uncorrelated bunch and trade them? How do I find slash choose uncorrelated stocks? Yeah, and then if I have too many signals to adjust it with the trades I'm in. Okay, so a little bit about how to deal with essentially an account size where you you can trade more than you can in reality, I would say was seems to be one of the questions and and also how many positions to put on at half a percent risk, so to speak, if that makes sense. Do you want to go first on this one, Moritz? Yeah, so just to, to clarify maybe one thing here, uh, I think I understood that he said it's not a margin account. So if it's not a margin account... That's right, he has to pay in the full the full amount. So that means he cannot get leverage, right? Correct. In this case, on the equities, in this case, it sounds right? like so, it, yeah. So let's say you have 100 bucks, just for argument's sake, to make the, to keep the calculation simple. You have 100 bucks. Um, if you invest 100 bucks in equities, that's 100% exposure. There's no leverage, right? Then you have the risk of, say, the S&P 500 if you're buying the SPY, for instance. Now, if you purchased 200 stocks and each stock has a half percent equity allocation, then no leverage because 200 times 0.5 is your 100% yep. exposure. So if this is what he's doing, he could buy 200 stocks and give uh, every single one of them 0.5% risk. Now, let's differentiate that from the way we trade because we use futures contracts, we use leverage, and we therefore have a different, a different way of thinking about that risk when we take on a position, right? So if we take on 0.5% equity risk, we would position the size such that, for instance, when it goes into its stop loss or its exit, it will have lost 0.5% um, of our equity, but the position itself may be very much leveraged, right? This is how we do it. I guess it's well, dif difficult for me to answer the, the, the question precisely here. Well, what I would say is that if you don't use leverage, half a percent risk is probably too little anyways, right? right. So it doesn't make sense to trade 200 stocks with half a percent exposure in each because it means that the stocks go, has to go to zero before you lost half a percent, which some might do. We know that that can happen, but not all of them. In that case, I think if we understand you correctly, Carl, here, I think if you're trading without leverage, it probably makes sense to have a fewer positions, but bigger position size. It could be, and I'm just throwing something out, two, three, four, five percent position risk for each equity. So if you're completely wrong on, on a stock and it goes to zero, like Enron did, you lose five percent. Okay. But as, as Mark's saying, since we use leverage, we can lose multiples of half a percent in our portfolio. And that's why we keep it probably even smaller than half a percent in reality. And um, maybe one word here on those indices, let's not forget that, especially in the past couple of years, the major equity indices have become increasingly concentrated in a couple of names, FANG stocks, tech stocks, you name it, right? Because market cap or float weighted indices, they have like a hidden momentum behind them, right? In their weighting scheme. And the past few years have been characterized by a massive outperformance of momentum and growth over, for instance, value. So if you're buying an index such as the S&P 500, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure what exactly the five names are, but it's like the apples, the Facebooks, all the tech stuff, right? That essentially gives you the exposure. Of course, the ETFs are very liquid and they're cheap to trade, but I guess there's a point that could be made that if you stay away from those indices, say you use, you know, 20, 20 other stocks and you give them equal weight, you probably have more diversification. 
and maybe you don't have to out think you know outsmart yourself there just you know go different industries different sectors and just yeah you know that you know tesla and coca-cola they will be doing different things it's just different businesses right so put them in yeah and i think that to answer your question that Moritz started on answering in terms of how do I find on-core latest stocks? Well, in theory, you could just use a spreadsheet to to find stocks that have low, low correlation, but otherwise common sense can take you quite a long way. Just look at what what's happened in the last few months this year. And and by the way, as, as one of the previous guests on the podcast, Chris Cole, tweeted out yesterday a chart about a massive reversal in momentum versus value. I mean, you probably need a little bit of both, so to speak, because they won't be the same and they certainly will be uncorrelated from time to time. So uh, hope that helps you uh, on your journey, Carl. Let me quickly run through as we wind down early today uh, the performance of where we stand so far this month, this year. Friday was probably a down day. I think that's pretty safe to say across the board. But as of Thursday, which is when we have the numbers, the beta 50 was down 82 basis points for June, down 305 for the year. SOCGEN CT index down almost 2% for June, down 3.14% for the year. The SOCGEN trend index down 2.72, down just shy of 2% for the year. And the SOCGEN short-term traders index down 65 basis points for June and still up 3% for the year. And then finally, the Bridge Alternatives Index down 2.6% for the month and down 2.22 for the year. And in comparison, just because I have the number, the MSCI World Index was, uh, as of uh, Friday, up 5.53% for June, but still down about 4% for the year. Anything, any final words today uh, before we uh, close down? No, I hope for some sunshine in the coming week and um, maybe some better trend-following performance. Other than that, no, I'm all good. Excellent. And as usual, keep coming with your questions to the info at toptradersonblock.com email address, and we'll do our best to answer them on the following show. Uh, it really does make it more fun, I think, and interesting for everyone to hear where yes. the pain points and questions are. So we love that. And as you uh, have heard today, we may even venture into some completely non-systematic discussions, which is fun. And uh, so you never know. We're going to try and keep it fresh here on uh, Top Traders Unplugged. So from Moritz and me, thanks so much for listening. And we look forward to being back with you next week. In the meantime, happy trading and uh, take care. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.